What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these Indie Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with my brother, Channing Allen. Channing, how's it going? It's going swell. This is your first time on the Indie Hackers podcast. You've been my twin brother for 35 years. People don't know you because I don't talk about you on the show, but you've been helping me run Indie Hackers for the last five years. You're sort of my co-founder for Indie Hackers. You joined Indie Hackers seven months after I started it. And then a month later, we got acquired by Stripe. And Patrick asked if I wanted any anything as part of the deal. And I was like, yeah, you got to hire my brother too. And so you've been working on Indie Hackers with me ever since, but you've never once come on the podcast. I don't know why that is. If you never wanted to come on, I think I've invited you on. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like we have a division of responsibilities we kind of always have. And I honestly just, in my in my mind, I just partitioned what I was working on and a little bit away from what you were working on. I don't even listen to half the episodes. And what do you do? What do you work on? Well, so we, we both do strategy. But you largely do like the, the code stuff. I like vaguely say like you're sort of more focused on the community historically. And I've been a little bit more focused on the media side, except for ironically, right. the podcast itself. Okay. So yeah. And now you're finally on the podcast. And I think the impetus for this is the fact that we were both just in Italy together. I don't really see you that often. You live in New York City. I live in Seattle. But we both went to Bologna to basically hang out with like a bunch of other indie hackers at this founder conference thing that happened. And it was pretty cool. I mean, I had a good time. I talked to Peldy, probably the funniest guest I've had on the podcast. Tara Reed was there. Laura Roder was there. Uh, Rand Fishkin was there. A bunch of different founders I've had on the podcast before. And I think that was probably your first time meeting most of those people, right? What'd you think? I really liked it. Part of that is also we were together, right, for a lot, a lot of the time. And we literally just put a lot more time into dog fooding our website, right. like actually going in and, and, and using it. And we just had way more opportunity to just both be sitting at the kitchen table together using the site. If we're trapped in like a room together, like what are, what else are we going to talk about? Like we're going to talk about indie hackers, right? Like I don't want to hear about your right. novels for the 15,000th time. Like you don't want to hear about my polyamorous lifestyle <laughs> for like the 100,000th time. But like Andy Hackers is the thing that we both do for a living. It's endlessly entertaining. So like, obviously, we're just going to talk about that and then get like all riled up over it. But the downside was COVID, getting COVID. I have so far throughout the pandemic for two years now managed to not get COVID that I know of. And I've been tested like at least a dozen times. Every time I feel the slightest bit sick, I get tested and I have not tested positive. We go to the conference, I don't know, two days afterwards, half the people there have COVID. It's basically the super shredder event and like i finally go from being uh one of the cool kids who's not gotten covid in the last two years to one of the covid kids i feel like a zombie in the zombie movie now like i got got and you got covid too so we had to basically be quarantined in italy together for two weeks much longer than i wanted to be in italy there's worse places to be quarantined but still like you don't want to be in a foreign country sick with covid ups and downs of covid for you i know it was your also your first time getting covid what was the high point what was the low point it was all low, but I'm actually more curious. I want to. I want to like do a who's got the better brother immune system test. How are you doing now? How do you feel now? Oh, I feel good now. I mean, it's been like two weeks. It's been two weeks since we tested positive, so I feel good. I feel totally healthy, except for the fact that like I've been sleeping like 12 hours a day, 10, 12 hours a day. I normally sleep like five hours a day, and not because I'm like some sort of like braggy, I don't need to sleep person, but because like 
I go to sleep the second my head hits the pillow and four or five hours later, I'm just up and I can't get back to sleep no matter what. And I'm just ready to start the day. And so it's been like a total mind fuck for me to basically stay asleep for eight hours and then wake up and in the middle of the day, take another like two or three hour nap. And I thought it was jet lag because Italy's nine hours ahead of Pacific time. So it's like essentially by the time like I'm going to sleep here on the West Coast, like I would have been waking up in Italy. So maybe it's partly jet lag, but I think partly it's just COVID, right? It's like recovery from COVID. My body's just tired. So other than that, I feel like a million bucks. Uh, where, where are you at? I'm good, but I feel like I kind of waver in and out. I mean, you were there. We got COVID like right after we tested positive for it. We began to actually have our symptoms right. abate a little bit. And then I played, what was it? Four, three hours straight of VR ping pong. And then instantly I stopped feeling good yeah. for like two days. So I, I uh, prepped some topics just to talk about that I thought would be interesting. Uh, I think you did the same. Maybe you want to toss one out. So have you heard anything about New York Times and their editorial board telling their uh, reporters to spend a lot less time on Twitter? Yeah. So this is this is super fascinating to me because every major news organization for the last like five years uh, has really aggressively taken to Twitter. Right. Every New York Times reporter is on Twitter. They break their stories on Twitter. It sort of seems like they have to. And it turns out New York Times, like internally, they almost had a mandate. It wasn't official. But like if you're a reporter, you're expected to be on Twitter. And that's really quickly unwinding right now. Um, there was a memo that went out where their executive editor basically said to turn that down. And I thought that was really interesting because even though the reasons they give for this are super, super milk toast, like in the memo it was like, you know, hey, you know, there's sort of a, a risk of harassment on Twitter. Um, you know, when you're on Twitter, people are a little bit more distracted than normal. I found, a, I found a summary, a summary of their memo. It's like four points for why they think their journalists should spend less time on Twitter. Number one, Twitter takes up too much of their journalist time. Number two, it warps their reporting by changing who they see as their audience and the feedback they get on their work. Now they're just kind of catering to the Twitter audience as if that's everybody. Number three, it's a major driver of harassment and abuse. And number four, bad tweets are a significant reputational threat to the New York Times and its staffers. So uh, upshot of all that, get off Twitter or stop using right. it so much. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, th so those, are all, those are all the explicit reasons that were given. I heard Cal Newport, the author of Deep Work, has a, sort of has a podcast. He talked about a real reason or what he believes is a real reason for this, which is a lot juicier and a lot more interesting, which is one of the most popular writers at the New York Times, Taylor Lorenz, you, you know her, right? She's constantly in these dust-ups and gets into a lot of drama where she like talks shit to Silicon Valley VCs and she you know, tries to infiltrate what's going on. She is now, I don't know if she got fired or if she left the New York Times, but she basically has gotten in these like arguments with people from the New York Times. So like Maggie Haberman, she's like this really, she's like a White House reporter. She had all these uh, scuffles with like Donald Trump and Maggie Haberman and Taylor Lorenz have had like these like public battles where they're arguing against each other and they're kind of talking crap about each other in, in the news. And the two sides are sort of like this. Uh, Taylor Lorenz basically says that the New York Times in a lot of ways suppresses, you know, sort of her need to try to grow her personal brand. She can get paid a lot of money on Substack, or she just got a, a really a, probably much more profitable, high paying job at the Washington Post. A lot of New York Times authors have left the New York Times and have started Substacks where they're making tons of money. 
And it's because they're building their brands. They're scuffling on Twitter. They're like getting embroiled in these dramatic fights. And the tension is when they're doing that, they're not necessarily doing things that are the best for the New York Times. I mean, every time Taylor Lorenz got in some kind of a uh, got into an argument with people in, in the Silicon Valley VC arena or got in arguments with like the tech world, she complained that the New York Times didn't back her up right. and didn't like come and like support her. Right. And from their perspective, they're like, well, that's that's not our job. Right. And this isn't your job. And so it's 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 kind of funny because this to me, we obviously talk all the time about personal branding. And like right now at the top of our forum, there's like a guy who's complaining that there are way too many indie hackers who try to build their personal brands and spend too much time on Twitter as opposed to focusing on their customers. Well, I think that's that's what the internet is about, right? The internet is about authenticity. It's about the fact that you can, for the first time in history, just like, oh, you like an author or a scientist or a politician, just tweet them. And they can open it and they don't necessarily have to have someone employed to do this for them. And read your tweet and your message and respond directly to you. And I think that part of what's happening is that, like, you know, the Internet's been around for 30, 40 years or whatever the web has. Part of what's happening is the culture is still changing around that. Just because we've all adopted the technology doesn't mean our culture and our institutions and our businesses have adopted to it. And I think one of the changes is that, like, if you're the New York Times, you just kind of have to eventually suck it up and realize that, like, your reporters do kind of have all the power. And even if you want to retain all the power in your organization, like your reporters and journalists are the ones writing the stories. They're the ones talking on the podcast. They're the ones talking on YouTube. Audiences are going to have more affinity for them than they do for your brand or, you know, at the very least, an equal amount. And so they're going to build up followings. And they're going to be able to command higher salaries and to request higher you know, levels of support from the parent brand. And if you don't keep them happy, they'll leave. And I think that that's just where the world is going. And so like people like Taylor Lorenz, like I think she's ultimately right. You know, she like left the New York Times to go to the Washington Post because they get the Internet a little bit more than the New York Times, she says. Uh, meanwhile, the New York Times is telling its reporters to try to like, you know, clamp down on Twitter. I don't think they necessarily have the clout or the power to to do that. Right. Like organizations that thrive will be the ones that cater to the power of the individual journalist. There is some room for like, OK, aggregating all of these people like the New York Times under one brand. Like the New York Times does have its own distinct brand. I think that will endure. But I don't I, I just don't think it's going to retain as much power over individual creators as it has in the past. So instead of trying to like play this losing game where we stick with the past, let's just play a winning game where we try to like basically out innovate ourselves. It's really painful. It sucks, right? But like you might as well do it. So like okay, give someone like Taylor Lorenz, give like your star journalist an amazing amount of upside. Like allow them to become millionaires by working for you. Do everything in your power to throw followers at them, right? If you do that, then like, why would they ever quit? Why would they ever leave? Why would they ever go to a Substack or something else? So another one I wanted to talk to you about that I think would be interesting to you is this is this technology. It's this new, basically, I don't know how to refer to it. Is it an algorithm? Is it, I don't know what it is. It's called Dolly 2. It's an AI system that can create realistic images and art mm. from a description written in natural language. Have you seen this? It's been blowing up on Twitter the last couple of weeks. I have. I haven't seen much. I've seen some, someone made a post. Yeah, it's pretty, it's really pretty freaking sweet. It. So there's like, do you know what GPT-3 is? The big sort of AI splash a couple of years ago, a year or two ago. It's like you can basically generate text that looks like it's written by a human. And Dolly is the same thing, but it generates images that look like they're created by a real artist. And like you can give it the like most brief of descriptions and it will spit out like an amazing image that looks like it was created like you can say for example uh draw me a photo of a quaint flower shop storefront with a pastel green and clean white facade and an open door and a big window and it'll literally spit out like a photo 
of that kind of flower shop at a cool angle. And it just looks like a photo that someone took of a real flower shop somewhere. It's indistinguishable from a photo someone took somewhere. Or you can say, oh, I want it like, I want that in the style of like art deco. And it'll give you like an art deco painting. That sounds like everyone's logo should be made by this. Exactly. It's fucking dope, dude. It's like almost any art style you can imagine. This thing can within seconds spit out a picture in that art style. Like I'm looking at some of these pictures. So many people who have access to this are on Twitter. And their minds are blown and they're creating threads of all these pictures. Like one of them is like an astronaut surfing on a sea turtle over a rainbow past planets in space. And it's literally a picture of an astronaut. It's like it looks like like somebody painted this. It's like super colorful and artistic. And I think to me, like the obvious implication is exactly what you're saying, which is like we no longer need illustrators. Like if I want to create a blog post, I might in the past have spent a bunch of money to hire an artist in-house. But now I can like, okay, I can log into Dolly 2 give it, you know, some input to tell it about my style, keep clicking refresh until it gets the style that I want, and then just describe every blog post I write, every article I write, and it'll just, like, create its own unique art to go at the top of it that looks amazing. And why would I pay hundreds or thousands of dollars for an illustrator if this computer can do it in seconds much faster and basically for free? I hope I hope our illustrator for our newsletter doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> but that, but, so, okay, but, so that, that... It seems like when you want an illustration done or when you want almost any kind of art done, especially like at a commercial level, like, hey, this company, you know, we we do blog posts or we do a newsletter or we do X, Y, Z, like you want it to seem fairly consistent. So I like that's kind of when I the only question that I have, like, is this thing? Dude, let me send you let me send you some of the pictures of this. Like, here's my favorite one uh, I just found. I'm just looking at people's Twitter threads that they're doing here. I just sent it to you on Telegram. This one, he typed in a bowl of soup. That's a portal to another dimension as digital art. And it gave him two different versions of this art. One of them is like this top-down view of this soup with this cool rainbow swirl that's like magical coming out of the soup. And it's like a painting of that. And the other one is uh, kind of a side view of this like blue soup with this other like mystical portal. And it's just crazy. Here's the thing. People have said for years that computers cannot be creative. No matter what computers Mm -hmm. can do, you know, they're just dumb calculators. They can't be. And this is mostly coming from like artists, right? The computers will never replace people. They can't be creative. But like I've spent a lot of time <laughs> browsing artwork on 99designs and on DeviantArt and all sorts of random like websites. And like the stuff I see coming out of this is way better than what the vast majority of humans, including a lot of like artists who make a living doing art, can create and easier and convenient. And I think it's like, at the end of the day, it's not true that computers can't be creative. Like computers are machines that are almost meant to be creative. And these things can literally just ingest the entirety of human creation in a few hours or days or weeks and then spit out basically something that is like a result of discerning all these patterns and what humans can create and then extending it and going even further. And I think that like at the end of the day, like it doesn't really matter if like this, the lights are on on the computer, if it's conscious or sentient or not, right? It's just a dumb computer. It's none of those things. But it's still spitting out things that I, as like a business owner or as a consumer, look at. I'm like, yeah, that's quality art. Like that looks amazing. Like that's better than anything I could ever hope to paint after years of study. And so, I don't know. I think we're living in like uh, we're living in the future in a way. So we've got so so we've got GPT three that's doing text. Um, so now we've got digital art like what's next well like okay music is a big one did you ever see that movie her with uh joaquin phoenix music that's true 
I love that movie. He's got like his AI yeah. phone in his pocket and like the camera's kind of pointing out from his pocket. So his phone is essentially following him around in life, sees everything he sees. He's got a little earpiece in and she can like talk to him and like look anything up in an instant, give him all this advice. And at one point there's like a scene, he's on the beach and he's feeling kind of sad. And I think he's just like, oh, play me something melancholy. And she just like creates this classical composition from scratch to perfectly match his mood. And like, that's another example of like, computers will never be creative. And it's like, well, what if, what if a computer can write music based on what it knows you like from scratch? You know, like that's coming. Video, I think is another big one. Obviously, we're just now getting to the point where it can do images, but like, it seems like close to perfect. What happens when computers can make videos and AI can just basically say, oh, I want like a video of me being a superhero and saving somebody or me using my product and having a great time. And the computer can basically ingest a bunch of product videos or superhero videos and create something and interpose your face onto it, right? That's coming at some point in the future. 3D environments. So right now, if you want to build a video game, you got to hire hundreds or thousands of artists who painstakingly craft like every single detail of the 3D world. What happens when you can tell an AI what you want the world to look like and you can describe it and you come back and it's generated a world, right? And you can just tell how to tweak it. And GitHub Copilot is an AI trained on, I think, the entire the entirety of GitHub's code bases, which is like millions and millions of code bases. And so when I'm writing code for indie hackers, sometimes it'll just like spit out like, oh, is this what you're trying to write? And it'll just have the next like 20 lines of code written just because millions of other people have written somewhat similar code. So it reads their code, it reads mine, and it, it guesses all the variable names, exactly what I'm trying to do. And it's ridiculously, scarily accurate. So what, is, what, what does this mean? I feel like you know me. I know you. Neither of us are sort of alarmist. Like neither of us feel like you know. Oh, you know, like humans are going to get repl- like both of us. We tend to find ways to be to just I don't know take advantage and like it. It, so- it sounds like a utopian world to me. But what do you think that this means for other people or for the economy? I think it depends. It's like that book, um, Crossing the Chasm. Anytime there's a new technology or product that you release, the first people to use it are the innovators. These are the people who don't care how buggy it is, how shitty it is, how early it is. They can kind of see ways that they can make use of it to profit or to make their lives better. And then after that, you got the early adopters. These are the people who are like still pretty early, pretty visionary. They come after the innovators. And then eventually you get like the late adopters, et cetera, like the people who are like the last to use anything new and they can't understand why it would ever be useful until you know, everyone else on earth is using it. And then, you know, they finally buy a cell phone in like 2012, right? And I think that the reality for like this kind of stuff is if you are a founder and you are like looking for a new idea or something, you can probably find ways to use a lot of this stuff, especially like this new image generating stuff. It's so easy to use. I think the text is a little bit harder. I think on a societal level, most people won't be directly using this stuff. Like they're not going to try to figure out how to use AI, but they'll be enjoying the results of the creations that come from it, right? And so if you could figure out how to use this stuff to be a tool that augments your workflow. If you're a writer and you can generate lots of different texts to like help inspire you or help get your, you know, your juices flowing or help you, you know, get a little bit further ahead on that essay, I think that's awesome. Like this is to me is just like a tool that's going to amplify human abilities. It'll probably put some people out of jobs, but that's been happening for hundreds of years. In the 1800s, almost everybody used to be a farmer <laughs> and then we got like farm equipment and suddenly, you know, you don't need so many farmers. And that doesn't mean that everybody is just like unemployed. That means people sort of rise to higher callings. And so what I like to hope the future consists of is that we have fewer and fewer people doing sort of old jobs and we have more and more people doing jobs that are like a little bit more creative, a little bit more fulfilling, a little bit more personal, a little bit harder for computers and 
machines to basically replicate, which we're already seeing, you know, and there's a dystopian version of that, like the sort of gig economy, Uber driver, everybody is just like this, you know, person you summon from an app and works for pennies. But there's kind of a utopian version of that too, which is people instead of being gig economy workers are startup founders and they're self-employed and they essentially what Legion calls the passion economy. They're following their passion. They're getting paid to do it. Whereas like, you know, the year 1850, no one's going to pay you to like make TikTok videos because number one, TikTok doesn't exist. But number two, like get to work, like we need to eat. Right. And so I think we, we might be heading toward a society where people can do more fulfilling things because sort of the grunt work of just doing basic illustrations and writing basic essays and, you know, writing code or whatever gets automated out and we need more creative tasks. There's a, uh, a famous quote from, I think it was John Maynard Keynes back in like the 1920s or so. And he, he made two predictions based on the trends in technology, the way, like the speed of innovation at that time. Um, and only one of his two predictions came true. One of them was like by 1990, there's going to be so much wealth. There's going to be so much like, you know, technological advancement that we're not going to have to work that much anymore, as much as we had to work here in like the 1920s. And indeed, we're all going to, you know, we're all going to have, you know, these like three, three day work weeks. And, you know, everyone's going to be doing exactly what you just said, spending a lot of time doing creative things and whatnot. And his technological predictions came true. His like wealth creation predictions came true. We really do live in this, in this world. I mean, yeah, fine. Dolly is really cool. But I mean, just the crazy pace of innovation in the last 20, 30, 40 years has been staggering, but the second piece didn't come true. Like we're still working as much as ever. We're working perhaps more than ever. The quote that comes to mind for me is from uh, William Gibson. It's the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed, right? Like if you're in San Francisco, like I just saw a story, cop pulls over a driverless car. So cruise technology has uh, their driverless cars and they literally are now, I think legal in San Francisco and they just drive around like driverless Ubers and they can pick you up. You can summon them. They'll pick you up, take you where you want to go. There's not a driver in the car. And one of these cars had the headlights out and a cop pulled it over because the headlights were out. And then people started filming because they're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen? Like, it's on a busy San Francisco street and they see this cop walking up to the car. And like, presumably the officer didn't even know there wasn't a driver. And he walks up <laughs> and there's no one in the driver's seat. So he's like trying to figure out, like, how do I open the door and turn the lights on, et cetera. And then the car just like pulls away because <laughs> AI is like, I'm not parked in a safe spot. Like, I'm going to pull over here. And who do you give a ticket to? Right. Like that's a very futuristic problem that like I couldn't even have imagined 20 years ago. But if you live in San Francisco right now, you're like recording that on your phone and that's happening. Huh. I'm reading this book right now by this author uh, who's a game designer. And it's about literally how she thinks that we should try to gamify the world. And one of the things that she points out is that we like to have rules and we kind of like simple game worlds where everything is kind of simple, it's clear what the, the action steps are that you should take. There's two sides to a lot of new things and a lot of things changing. On the one hand, on the one side, people who are take a lot of initiative, who kind of have an entrepreneurial mindset or an early adopter mindset, have a field day with it. Because I think in a lot of ways, you have to be the kind of person who says, oh, hey, like there's new stuff in the environment. I can't wait to play with it and combine it and recombine it and figure out how I can like, you know, like make it work for me. Yeah, agreed. I like doing this with you. Let's do more of these. I'm definitely down to do it just so that I can keep you accountable and make sure that the podcast is staying up to the right kind of standard. <laughs> yeah. All right. Later, dude.
All right, later.